Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. A child seldom needs good talking to as a good listening to. Robert Briolt. Hey everyone, what's up? And welcome back to another episode on the Hipster Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Batters. And if you're a first time listener to the show, I would like to say welcome and to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to listen. It's my sincere hope that you find something useful, enlightening, entertaining, and who knows, maybe you'll find all of the above while listening to this podcast. Are you tired of in the moment parenting? Did you know that you can totally change the way you discipline your child or children that won't leave you feeling depleted? And I have the privilege of sitting down and talking with Rachel Bailey, who is a parenting specialist who has been serving families for over a decade. Besides being a mother of two kids, she has her master's degree in clinical psychology, a certification in positive discipline, and she's provided services as an ADHD coach, in-home mentor, and therapist. Rachel Bailey has also appeared on the Family Brain podcast podcast, Minimalist Moms podcast, and she recently launched her own podcast called Your Parenting Long Game Podcast. And her podcast is for parents who want not only short-term tips for handling current kids' behaviors and moods, but who are exhausted from addressing the same situation over and over and want to find solutions that last much longer into the future. Let's turn our attention to Rachel Bailey, and I hope that you guys will enjoy the conversation as well as learn some new tips and tricks just like I did. Well, thank you for joining me today, Rachel, and I appreciate that. (laughs) Absolutely. And I'm excited for our conversation today because I like to learn more about parenting, and I'm sure everybody else would like to learn that too. (laughs) Especially these days, because it was hard before, but it got harder when we're home with our kids all the time. Yeah, Yeah. right. And it just seems like it's, I don't know, maybe to me, it seems like it's getting harder because there's so much more to be worried about, so much more to be proactive with. And it's just insane. It really is. So true. So true. And no one has time to be proactive either, which is, I teach proactive strategies, but I also have to teach time management because people are like, I don't have time for that. Yeah, you actually do, but you have to make time. So oh, right. But we'll talk about all that, I'm sure. Right. So uh, we'll just get started here. So if you want to tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself, like what you do and um, anything that you would like to share, just so that way they can kind of understand who you are, what you do for a living, things like that. Sounds good. Most importantly, I'm a mom. I have two daughters that, like I said, who are seven and 10. And um, in addition to being a mom, I have, my, my background is really clinical. So I actually didn't set out necessarily to work with parents. I started um, my career thinking I was gonna become a neuropsychologist. But along the way, while I was getting my PhD and going into that sort of training, I actually got pregnant with my first child. So I stopped. Um, and what I, at that time, I had already done a number of things in the, in the clinical world. I was an ADHD coach. I was a therapist. But what happened was I was working with kids. I was working with teens. And then at some point I realized that parents weren't, I wasn't able to support parents in the way that I wanted to. And I realized I was working with the kids and teens and I was sending them back home to an environment where parents weren't really sure what they were doing. So um, I realized this need for parents to have these really practical skills and tools and then, like I was saying before, I, we, I would give them these tools and they'd say, I'm a little bit 
overwhelmed. So I actually also help parents not only with parenting tools, but in how to reduce the overwhelm in their own lives. So that's basically what I do. There's been days like where I felt like really overwhelming too. And I can't imagine like getting, you know, like you uh, happened to you, like getting pregnant during um, college. And then I'm sure that had to make you do a whole quick uh, 360 there to try to figure out what's your next strategy. Yeah, because oh I was gosh. almost actually finished. I was, I was in graduate school, but I was almost finished with my PhD. Although my next step was what's called an internship, which was going to be a really intensive year. And I couldn't do that when pregnant. So mm -hmm. I did have to revisit what mattered to me, how I could contribute in a way that was different than what I intended. Absolutely. Right. Because I had talked to Michelle a little bit yes. too. And um, she had mentioned that because you're an expert in simplifying parenting. Like, yeah. can you just kind of tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, absolutely. So simplifying parenting actually comes down to a couple of things. One is, believe it or not, has to do with us. And most people aren't surprised when they hear that. But simplifying parenting, we think is, give me the best parenting strategy. And I have, very honestly, really good parenting strategies. But if we are not in a good place as human beings, right. we actually can't remember to use those parenting strategies. Right. What happens is when we're in a place that I call yuck, and yuck mm -hmm. is a term I used to describe, we're feeling overwhelmed or hungry or tired, anything uncomfortable. What happens is when we are in yuck, our brain actually shuts down the part of our brain where we can remember those tools and we can access those tools. So we have to think about how we treat ourselves. And I actually differentiate between self-care and self-treatment, which I can talk about if you're interested. But simplifying parenting is thinking about how we treat ourselves. And it's also about seeing our kids' behavior differently. When we see our kids' behavior differently, we actually respond differently, and it makes parenting so much easier. And I'm really about making parenting simpler and easier. So it's, again, how we treat ourselves and how we see our kids' behavior makes all the difference in simplified parenting. A lot of parents are always looking for new ways to just, like, adapt to, like, parenting because it's always changing. It seems like it's an ever-evolving thing, too, like, with, you know, worrying about schedules and also making sure we're putting enough time in for ourselves, too, because... I'm, I'm sure you've heard the saying goes like, uh, you can't pour from an empty cup if you're feeling very empty yourself. So self-care is very huge. <laughs> it's huge. And it's actually like, I explain this from a scientific perspective too. It's not, I just did a workshop on this yesterday. It's actually not that it would be nice to get self-care, but the way, you know, humans are survival based. That's our primary goal is to survive. So our brain is literally scanning the environment to see, do we have enough for us? And if we don't have enough for us, our brain will prevent us from giving to other people. So it's not even like it would be nice to have enough. Literally, our brain will shut down and we cannot give to somebody else. But that's why I really think self-treatment matters because we don't necessarily have time for self-care, but self-treatment is actually how we treat ourselves on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. And it doesn't take more time. So when we treat ourselves differently, we're not spending extra time going to get a manicure or a massage we're actually just changing how we treat ourselves so our brains realize we're safe and then we compare it the way we want to. And then I actually just got like a pedicure not that long ago too. And then for some reason, it's just those little things somehow make like a huge impact. And yeah. I'm like, wow, I didn't even realize this is what I was missing. But yeah. I'm like, kind of like that little way of like, I'm safe, you know, like these little mantras I kind of repeat to myself. <laughs> yeah, that one actually tells you, we, so we as humans have five emotional needs that if they're not met, our brain will will tell us we're not safe. But what you did when you got a, a pedicure is you actually told yourself you matter. That's an emotional need we have. Humans have, it's not a luxury, it's a need. And so when we treat ourselves like we don't matter because we don't spend, we don't take time for ourselves, our brain senses that as a threat. And we literally can't be the parents we want to be. So your brain did sense safety 
when you treated yourself like you mattered. And it really, again, this is science. It's not like woo-woo, anything. I'm a scientist at heart. It is, this is the way our brains are set up. Right. And, you know, it's just, if you don't meet those needs too, then it just causes you to shut down. And maybe even for some people, it's like, am I even worthy of, you know, these things, which we all are. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So like some parenting strategies, I'm just curious, like, what have you found that works best for parents or, and from even your own personal experience too, because you're a mom. I mean, it's like, what kind of parenting strategies do you suggest for people? So the most effective switch, remember I said that the, what we really need to do is change how we see kids' behavior. One of the most effective switches we can make that will simplify parenting is when a child is misbehaving, instead of seeing them as being bad, recognize they're actually missing a tool. And pretty much 90% of kids' misbehavior is the fact that they're missing a tool. And so if we switch from seeing them as bad to they're struggling, and if I teach them this tool, their behavior will change. And yeah, parents don't know what these tools are. That's why I'm here. I can tell you what the tools are that kids are missing. We don't know. We're never taught that that's actually, their behavior is simply their way of communicating that they're missing something. And if we switch our thought to what tool do they need and how can I give it to them, all of a sudden we can address the behavior and it changes in the long run. We do a lot of, we try to find quick fixes like rewards and punishments and Um, You know, what's the consequence that will get them to behave better? But if we don't actually address what's happening, why the behavior is happening, you don't see long-term change. And that's exhausting to address the same thing over and over. Right. No, I've, um, I've been having to, uh, I kind of do like this, like reward system sort of with my child. I mean, I kind of have like a color coded thing where it says amazing choices all the way at the top, like, uh, great choices, good choices. And then slowly from there, I kind of make him move like the pin down, like it's like a clothes pin he will move it down. Like if I say, you're not being very good, you need to move yourself down one. And I'm like, well, now he's seeing that, uh Oh, I'm going lower and lower and lower. But then after a while, I find that's exhausting. Like I don't like to have to remind him all the time. Yeah. And here's what I would say that that may eventually put uh, backfire on you because here's the thing. This is sort of what I was saying. If you don't actually, well, if you do, let me put this in the, in the helpful way. If you teach him how to act better, he won't actually have to move down. And that's always my goal for parents is not how do we find the best punishment when they misbehave? It's let's prevent them from misbehaving to begin with. And it's not punishment that it gets them there. It's teaching them how to do better. And it's giving them tools to be successful. And that really, then you don't, you can get rid of the reward chart or the, the, you know, the, the clothes pins or whatever, because yeah. they know how to do it. And it also, um, one of my areas of expertise is in self-esteem. And when we teach kids how to act better, we actually improve their self-esteem than trying to punish them all the time. Right. No, and I don't like to have to do punishment all the time either because I have found as he's gotten older, like some things that may have worked in the past just don't work anymore. And I'm like, okay, what what do I do here? I got to go back to the drawing board and refigure this out again because he's also getting the point seven years old, sassy. You know, he's very sassy. sassy. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. And again, there's a reason for that. And when we try to find, and I'm not anti-punishment necessarily, but I am pro finding what works better. And punishment is not the most effective discipline strategy. If families want to use it, I never take it away. But I will say, okay, add to your discipline repertoire what I'm teaching you, and you'll find that you don't even need to punish. So that's the key is if he's being sassy, you want to figure out why is he sassy? Is he testing boundaries? And if so, what does he need to know that, that your boundary is firm? And very often, if you just... Um, you know, tell him what you're going to do if he talks like that and you just let him get through whatever it is he's getting through. He's not going to do it again in the future. Right. 
it's just a matter of like just being repetitive with like, okay, test the boundaries again. You know, I'm like some things like I take away just like a special toy, you know, or activity that he really likes to do. Like, cause now during the summer he likes to go outside, ride his bike. And if he can't go outside, well, then that's like the whole world might as well just end right that in there. Cause yeah, like meltdown of the century. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, you have to be repetitive. Um, and because repetition is actually one of the most underused discipline strategies. We are not consistent. And so kids learn we're not consistent. Um, so when we, when we don't follow through and we don't do what we say we're going to do, kids learn that. But when we do follow through, consistency and repetition are, like I said, it's such an effective discipline strategy. Um, the only thing I will say about taking away things he cares about, and again, do you, I think every parent has to do what feels good. But know that a seven, he's actually acting like a normal seven-year-old by testing boundaries and becoming sassy. It's developmentally normal. And if we punish kids for being who they are, that can eventually backfire and make them feel bad about who they are. Now, am I saying let him be sassy? 100% no. It is our job to set boundaries as parents. But again, we can use things other than taking away what makes them feel good. Like imagine how we would feel if we didn't, let's say someone was trying to teach us French or Japanese and we were slow learners. And it's right. just the way we were, we process language. And then someone, every time we didn't learn the language, someone took away things we cared about. That doesn't feel good for us. And yet that's what we focus on with kids too. Right. No. And that makes a lot of sense because, you know, brand new language, you know, like you're saying Japanese, that takes a lot. And in fact, if I remember, I, um, my husband was in the service at one point and he said to read a newspaper, you have to understand over 5,000 characters in Japanese. And I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> exactly. And you have to learn that, yeah, all the characters and how you read it. And yeah, exactly. And that, believe it or not, is what's going on for kids. At seven years old, it's developmentally normal to be sassy. Not that it's okay. It's not. But right. that's the way their brains are wired. So we're trying to rewire their brains. And just like you have to rewire your brain to learn Japanese, a seven-year-old has to rewire their brain to learn how to act mature and responsible. The brain, and I study the brain for a living, the brain, a child's brain is not wired to behave. It's not. So we have to rewire it by being consistent and teach it instead of punishing it and making it feel bad for not learning. Right. Like yesterday I had to, I kind of had to get after him just a little bit cause he was, you know, you know, normal being sassy, but then still like testing those boundaries, even though I, I told him to stop doing what he was doing. Yeah. And finally I just had to, I, I had to keep being so repetitive with him and I'm just like, okay, do this again. And it's not going to be good for you. Like you cannot do this to mommy. Like mm -hmm. stop acting like this, please. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't know, like try to do anything and everything I can. So one of the suggestions I have for you, if it's okay. Yeah. yeah. Is to actually with him at seven, you can absolutely do this. You can start doing this at like four or five with him. Tell him what you expect. Tell him how you expect him to talk to you. So give him examples and then say, so you'd say, this is how I want you to talk to me. And then what I would do is ask him what it's like for him when he is being sassy. Like, why are you being sassy? And he might say something like, it's fun. Just let him tell you his perspective. Then what I would do is say, well, I can't let you talk to me that way. You need to talk to me the way I said. So let's come up with a plan that's gonna help you. And here's what I would do. Here's the big part I would stress. Come up with him what you are going to do if he doesn't listen. So are you going to walk away? Are you going to say one time, remember how I want you to talk to me, and then you're not gonna respond again until he talks that way. So I would decide, instead of in the moment trying to figure out what's the best thing to get him to stop, I would become a team with him, ahead of time decide what you were gonna do, so he already knows, 
give him the tools and then follow through. That's, that's a really simple way to actually change his behavior because you are deciding ahead of time, not in the moment, you don't feel helpless and he gets a say in it, which is a really important thing for kids. Right. I'm trying to do more of that, like trying to figure out like what is going to work better for him just because I found that, you know, like I said earlier, like some of the things that used to work, you know, when he was like three or four years old, no longer work as of right now. And I'm constantly trying to figure these things out. And there's been times where he's really tested the boundaries and I've had to just say, okay, I'm going to walk away now. Cause I've already told him like once or twice. And I'm like, Nope, this is the last time I'm walking away until you're ready to talk to me. Then you come and find mom. Cause yeah. Yep. And the other thing that you need to know about behavior too, especially in the moment is that negative behavior is also a sign that kids, like I said, are struggling. And here's mm -hmm. what happens is that their behavior, when you set a boundary, gets worse and worse and worse. And it follows like this rainbow shaped curve. I know people can't see me drawing that, but imagine a rainbow shaped curve. It gets worse. Eventually it reaches a peak though, and it comes down. So when kids are misbehaving, if we set a boundary and don't engage with that, what happens is they're going to get more and more upset when they realize we're not giving in but they're going to stop misbehaving. And when we maintain our boundary, even when they're misbehaving, eventually they realize that misbehaving is not going to get them what they want. But we as parents struggle to let them have their behavior and let them get it out and let them travel that curve. But ultimately, once they've done that, once they've released all of those feelings that they have, they do return to their good, normal self. They really do. That's a skill that they're missing now. Most kids don't know, and most adults don't know, when we're in a bad place, we don't know how to handle it in a healthy way. Kids definitely don't. So that's the behavior is only a symptom that they don't know how to handle it. And if we can just be firm and let them travel that curve without engaging with it, they're going to realize that they can't get away with negative behavior. Right. I need to get better about doing that too. Like, cause there's like, you know, the rainbow curve, like you were saying, it's just, I find myself like, it literally feels like, okay, we're doing decent, but then like, Oh, here we go again. We're going this all over again. And I, I I'm over it. <laughs> I'm really that, over and, that. absolutely. and that's why I do remember the first thing I said was, how are we treating ourselves? Because if we're in a bad place, everything that I just told you, yeah. Is when you're in a bad place, you can't do this, which is why a main part of parenting is let's get ourselves to a good place. And also here's one other thing I will tell you when it comes to how we treat ourselves. We also have to recognize the story we're telling ourselves about their behavior. If you're saying, oh my gosh, he's not listening to me, he's being bad, that's gonna put you into your fight or flight response. And you're not gonna be able to access the tools that you want to. If you say, hey, he's a kid and this is how he's supposed to act, I can be firm and here's the key. If you say to yourself, I can model what it looks like to be mature when things aren't going my way, that's when everything changes. But when we say he's being bad, I need to make him suffer for this, you're gonna go into this place where all you wanna do is hurt him, and not not talking about like literally hurting him, but yeah, you're gonna wanna right. make him pay for his behavior, which ultimately does not motivate better behavior. That goes back to the whole, if you're learning Japanese and someone makes you pay for your mistakes, you don't learn it better. Right. So yeah, it does come down to how we're doing and how can, how can we handle their emotions I have worked with so many parents on, it's okay if your kids get upset. Set the boundary anyway. Let them get upset. They'll release all that upset, set that boundary, and they will act so much better. Right. And it's like the idea of like, at least what I'm understanding is like the punishment payback model just, it doesn't work very well. It just it doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> it wouldn't work for us either. If, if we were struggling with something and someone took away what we cared about or made us feel bad about it, we would actually, this is what happens with kids, we would feel bad about ourselves and or we would be angry at that person. 
-hmm. we wouldn't do better. We would either harm ourselves or, or want to harm that person. That's what happens with kids. And I'm a former therapist. And that's what I saw all the time. Kids would come in it, with this punishment model. All their parents are doing is punishing. And they either had low self-esteem or they hated their parents or both. And at the same time, they weren't behaving better. So right. it's like, if you're going to have a child with low self-esteem or who hates you and you get good behavior, well, maybe that's one thing, but they weren't getting good behavior. So mm -hmm. we can get good behavior without making our relationships suffer or reducing their self-esteem. Right. And then I know there's a few times in my life, like when my parents were raising us, like me and my sisters, like we had like the whole punishment model, we would get things taken away from us. And I kind of noticed that too, where it was like a drop in like the self-esteem. It wasn't all the time, but you know, you do it consistently enough. It starts to go down and down and down. Like, yeah. Kind of like a, kind of like a downward spiral. It's really yeah. sad. Yeah. And that is what happens. It's either the low self-esteem or what also happens. And the other reason I don't love punishment is it's what I call an external, well, what anyone calls an external motivator. So what happens to a child if the parent isn't around, mm -hmm. if they know that they're only going to get punished if the parent isn't around. And I used to work with the teens who would sneak parties and sneak drugs because the only reason they weren't doing it is because of punishment. But if a parent isn't around to punish them, then they do it anyway. Now I want to raise my kids to make good choices, not just because they fear punishment, but because they know how to make good choices, even when I'm not around. And that's why, again, I focus on let's teach kids tools. Let's teach them how to handle their emotions so they can make healthy choices instead right. of focusing on how do I make them feel worse. It just doesn't get you the long-term results you want to see. Yeah. Right. Basically, just don't do that. You know, like the whole punishments. Like, I mean, it, it, they're necessary sometimes, but not like extreme harsh punishments because it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> I would argue, and again, I'm, I'm not anti-punishment. I'm not. Right, right. But I would argue the only time, I don't actually think punishments ever work. Punish, the goal of a punishment is to make someone feel worse. Now, I think consequences are necessary. Consequences, the goal isn't to make someone feel worse. It's to show them that when you do this, this happens. Uh, there's emotion removed. That's one of the big differences. Consequences are important sometimes, but only when the reason a child isn't doing something is because they know there's no consequence. But that's not what's causing children, for example, to not get off of their device or not clean up their room. These are the things I hear. My kids aren't cleaning. They're not getting off of their device. They're being mean to their brother or sister. The reason they're doing things is not because there's no consequence. It's because they don't know how to interact more successfully with their siblings. It's because they don't know how to transition when they're engaged in a video game, their brains don't know how to transition out of that video game. These are the tools we teach kids, and then you don't need the consequence because that's not what caused the behavior to begin with. Consequences only work when that was the reason they were doing it. Does that make sense? Right, like consequences only occur when they or when they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. And I guess that's what I'm, I'm understanding it. I hope I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah, I know. And I didn't even know we were going to go on this. Like I'm not an anti, you know, yeah. but um, yeah, I think that is, if we're talking about simplifying parenting, I think this is really how we got on this topic. Cause I have so many other topics that I talk about, but mm -hmm. uh, you know, even when it comes to simplifying parenting, but removing punishments does tend to simplify parenting. If you replace it, yeah. With teaching them how to act better. And that actually prevents you from having to deal with the same behavior over and over. That's why it simplifies parenting. Now, I just like curious here because I, I noticed that there was like one subject that also seems like an expertise is like parenting as an exhausted parent. Like, yeah. I'm just curious about like the in the moment parenting. Like, I would like to learn more like what, what is that? Because I'm sure some listeners yeah. that are maybe may listen to this may not know what in the moment parenting actually is. 
So this is one of the things I have a podcast and um, it's, it's called your parenting long game because I really do teach strategies that stick. Most parents when they come to me have tried everything and it hasn't lasted. So I'm like, I'm going to teach parents the strategies that stick. Now, one of the things I will say about long game parenting is that in the moment parenting when, and what I mean by that is um, reacting once a child has already misbehaved and you're in that moment addressing behavior in the moment parenting is exhausting because what happens is when you're addressing a behavior after it's happened, you are in this place that I call yuck. You're frustrated, you're annoyed, you're angry, you're exhausted. And what happens when we are in yuck, I, I applied this a little bit before, but I'll tell you again. When we're in yuck, our brain senses yuck, frustration, disappointment, any of that as a threat. So it turns on a fight, the fight or flight response. And when we're acting from our fight or flight response, that's exhausting and it's ineffective because our fight or flight response doesn't actually um, allow us to consider our values or the long-term consequences of our behavior or any of that. So when we're in this place of yuck, it's exhausting and it's ineffective. Also, our kids are in yuck in the moment. They just did something because they were in yuck or our behavior caused them yuck. And then you're dealing with your fight or flight response and their fight or flight response and it's just so tiring. So if you are exhausted, in the moment parenting is the least efficient way to parent possible. What you want to do instead is figure out what do your kids need and give it to them ahead of time. And a lot of parents will say, Rachel, I don't have time to do this stuff ahead of time. I'm so exhausted. And what I've had parents do is an audit of how long it takes to actually address behaviors over and over as, as they're happening. And then I give them a couple tools to try. And I say, how much time did you spend teaching those tools versus the power struggles? And they realize, oh my gosh, I spend so much less time if I actually proactively teach them some of these things. Right. And it sounds like proactive parenting is just a much easier way. It makes parents' life a lot easier. It makes kids' life a little bit easier because then I'm sure they're less stressed when instead of in the moment because I'm sure like kids are dealing with their flight or flight response too. And also they have their parents doing it at the same time. I'm sure at the end, both parties are exhausted. <laughs> they absolutely, they're exhausted and they damage the relationship usually in some way. And then a damaged relationship actually leads to negative behavior in the future. So a lot of families get caught in what I call the yuck cycle, which is where parents are in yuck. They respond in a way that puts their child in yuck. Their child responds in a way that puts their parent in yuck. And all of this creates problems in the relationship, which later the child creates more yuck and the child misbehaves more later. So that's why punishment, again, is it just perpetuates this. Whereas if we proactively teach our kids how to do things, then they actually do what they're supposed to do and we don't have to deal with it in the moment parenting. Right. I found that there's been a few circumstances where I, I think, you know, in the moment dealing with it and I'm, I've noticed that it kind of like you were talking about earlier, like that rainbow effect, yes. like the rainbow curve. And I've found that, yeah, I, it seems like we do okay for a little bit, but then before you know it, we're going right up back that rainbow. I like, I, I love it. No, I don't. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, we, we, it's, it's hard when we're in a bad place to deal with those emotions, but right. we can take a step back. And this is so much of the mindset stuff I do with parents. We can take a step back and say, you know what? Why do our kids' emotions bother us so much? Like, why do we get so upset when they're upset? Let, and that's one of the things, too, I think is interesting. I think our parents' generation was not, they weren't perfect, but one of the things they did better than we do is that they let, our parents let us be upset. Like our parents would set a boundary and we would get upset by it and they'd let us be upset. We get upset when our kids are upset. And so we tend to be less consistent because we're like, oh my gosh, that's going to upset my child. No, let them be upset. It's okay 
to let them be upset. So we have to remember that too, that that rainbow curve is not the end of the world. They're in it. They're supposed to be in it. That's normal. And then we don't get sucked into it. Right. Kind of like the idea of like getting sucked into it, like a tornado sort of. Yes. That's like, a really good image. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause really I, good. I've, cause my husband, I mean, God bless his soul. You know, he loves my son very much, but there's been times where I notice he tries to like instantly correct everything all the time. And I found that that's becoming more of a, I don't know what you want to call it, like a butterfly effect. It just kind of like goes from one thing, you make one choice before you know it, it just spirals out of control from there. <laughs> exactly. And if we're constantly correcting, that's not what that says to me is that your, your child doesn't have the tools. They yeah. don't need to be corrected when they know how to do what we ask, but kids are missing. Let me just give you some examples. If yeah. it's okay of tools that they're missing that mm -hmm. we don't even realize. Number one, they're missing the tool to regulate their emotions. And a lot of adults are missing this too. So if they're frustrated or disappointed, they are going to be disrespectful until we teach them. And I teach parents this too, how to be upset or frustrated and handle it in a mature way. They don't know how to do that. So we're constantly correcting them and saying, you can't talk to me like that, but we don't teach them how to do something different. Or again, another thing that they're missing is the ability to transition effectively. It's just not, their brains aren't developed enough. So when we say get off of your device, and they're engaged in something, they actually don't know how to disengage and do something else. And even as adults, we struggle with this. Like if you're in the middle of something and your child comes up to you and says, hey mom, you get really annoyed because you're in the middle of doing something. Our brains as humans are not wired to disengage. So we keep saying to our kids, get off of your device, get off of your device, get off your device. And even if we give them like a five minute warning, a five minute warning does not teach them how to disengage. All that happens is the, work, the timer goes off but they're still engaged. So when we right. teach kids how to regulate their emotions, we teach kids how to disengage. These are skills that can be taught. Then you don't have to correct behavior over and over because they know how to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, and just like, because the timer, like you're saying, just doesn't work. Cause I've tried that before too. And I found that he still continued just to be sucked into the, like the, sometimes we, we let him play like games every once in a while, like on the cell phone, you know, just something to occupy him for the time being. But then we're like, okay, you know, in five minutes we got to, you know, maybe we're leaving the house or whatever we got to leave. But then five minutes go by. He's still exactly. on. Exactly. So can I give you some tips that would work better than the timer? By yeah. all means, please. Yeah. <laughs> all your listeners to understand this too, because here's, so I've talked about, this, you know, teaching tools. I haven't really given any examples. So let me give you an example here of what I mean by that. So understand that the brain, the human brain does not disengage easily. We are goal oriented. So we don't like to disengage. So what you do instead of giving five minutes is a couple of things. Number one is you could say, okay, we're going to be here for five minutes. Know that the brain likes closure. So if you say, let's, I'm going to give you the phone. Let's find an endpoint before you begin. So you can watch instead of for five minutes, you can watch until whatever happens in the show, until they sing this song in the show. And when the brain knows there's closure, just like if we're watching a TV show and our kids come up to us and we're right in the middle of finding out if someone's going to die. But if we find out if someone died, then we've actually created closure. That's what we need to do for kids. Instead of saying five minutes, create closure. Now, if you didn't create closure, um, what you can do is say, realize they need to disengage. So say, okay, we have to stop. Hey, what were you watching? Tell me about what you were watching as we go to the next thing. That actually also helps their brain disengage. So instead of saying stop, that hard stop is the problem. We teach them how to actually like get out of their world into the next world by letting them talk about it. So those are two really quick examples of tools. We, tools work with kids' brains. 
punishment and all those other strategies work against their brains. So we teach them how to do this and then it just goes so much better. Right. I mean, I, I might've actually have done that like once or twice before without even realizing it. Cause I'm like, Oh, what was in the, you know, the movie that he had watched or, Oh, like, what were you watching on TV, like a TV show? And he, then he tells me about it. But then before I know it, he's off onto the next thing. And I'm sure, like, that's, that's because you, <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't study the brain like I did. So you wouldn't have known that, but I actually really understand that stuff. And so what I teach are these tools, you unintentionally worked with the way his brain works. For a lot of parents, and, and you sound like you're one of them, this actually is intuitive. Mm-hmm. For most parents, it's not though. We work against their brain, but it really sounds to me like you're, you, you kind of get this stuff intuitively. Yeah. I mean, I, I try. <laughs> I really well, try. good for you. Yeah. That's all I, we can do. Right. Right. Like just the proactive, trying to be proactive with it as much as I can. And yeah, I mean, sometimes I guess, you know, like you're saying, you're not against punishment because sometimes some punishments, they're necessary, but you know, harsh punishments. I try not to do that by any means. It just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I am anti like making your kids feel worse, but consequences is what I absolutely, I believe consequences must happen sometimes Mm -hmm. because if a child thinks, Hey, I could, in fact, I just had a consultation with someone, you know, earlier today. Um, you know, his, her, her son was talking back and I said, well, how do you respond? She said, well, I don't really. Well, if a child is talking back because they know nothing's going to happen, then a consequence is necessary, but it doesn't have to be, if you talk back to me, I'm taking away everything you care about. It's yeah. this, this, what I was saying before. This is how you talk to me. If you don't talk to me, I mean, if you don't talk to me like that, I'm not going to respond or I'm going to walk away or I'm going to. So it's not, we don't have to make them feel worse. Mm-hmm. We have to give them what they need to be successful. And that's where you improve self-esteem rather than damaging it. And right. we always need to expect that their behavior should be respectful. I'm, right. I do not condone disrespectful behavior in any way. Right. And like my, his grandparents, like my parents, they, they live, you know, here in the same town as I do. We'll go over there and visit. And sometimes I catch him kind of being a little too sassy with his grandma and his grandpa. And I'm like, would you like it if they talked to you like that? And he's like, well, no. And I'm like, then don't talk to grandma and grandpa like that, please. Yeah, absolutely. Just, I found that being repetitive because he doesn't do it all the time, but the, (laughs) the occasional glimpses. Yeah. Repetition is key repetition because what they realize they can't get away with, they won't try to get away with, but if they can find a loophole, that's actually the brain, the brains are wired. If they can find a loophole, they will spend (laughs) time trying to find that loophole than just doing what the heck they were supposed to do to begin with. Right. Right. I found that he tries to do that too. Like, uh, like the little loopholes or just, you know, trying to worm his way out of something. And I'm just like, Nope, you, you cannot do that. Like, you know, that, and like, I didn't get away with this stuff when I was your age, you're not going to get away with it now. <laughs> right. Exactly. And when they realize that they're not going to, which is what happened to a lot of us, we realized we weren't going to get away with it. And that's when we stopped. So yeah, consistency mm-hmm. is incredibly important, but, and so is just giving them the tools to be successful. Cause if we're consistent and we never teach them the tools, then right. they start to feel bad about themselves. Yeah. But we can do both at the same time. We can be consistent and teach them. Right. Like, and those, uh, you, I know you're mentioning those tools. Like, what are those tools again? I don't know if you had mentioned it or not. So, yeah, I mean, the tools that they're missing, I mentioned two. So one of them is emotional regulation and we can teach them how to regulate. Another is transitions. Another one is that comes up a lot is kids actually have trouble staying on task when there's something boring they have to do. So mm-hmm. if they have to clean up or brush their teeth or put on their clothes. Now, I'm a big believer that they have to do those things anyway. They just have to. So we could consequence and consequence and consequence, but we could also teach them how to stay engaged when they have to clean or brush their teeth. 
And when we teach them how to do that, and this is different, by the way, than teaching them how to make it fun. My job as a parent is not to make my kids' life fun. My job is to, again, work with their brains to get them to do what the heck they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. We can teach kids how to stay on task by teaching them how to engage their brains. Just something very simple. Let's say your child is um, you know, brushing their teeth, or they're not brushing their teeth, saying something like, hey, brush your teeth with one foot off, you know, standing on one foot. That creates engagement. All of a sudden, they want to do it. So again, this isn't meant to be fun. This is realizing that children's brains are wired for engagement. And if you work with that instead of against it, you don't need to punish them. You teach them how to do it and then you don't have to punish. So yeah, we have that difficulty focusing, which is not a sign of ADHD because I'm I'm an expert in ADHD. All kids Mm -hmm. struggle to focus. We have the transitions, we have the emotional regulation, other tools kids are missing, they don't know how to solve problems. So we have to teach them, you know, conflict resolution, otherwise they're gonna be mean to their siblings. And then the other big tool, and this is probably the last one that really comes up a lot, is impulse control. They don't have impulse control. So we could have told them 10 times not to do something, but we actually have to teach them impulse control. It doesn't come naturally. So those are some of the tools that kids are missing. Right. It seems like those kids, like they they just give into those impulses really quickly because they see, oh, I don't want to do this boring activity. And I'm like, but that looks like a lot of fun. Let's go do that. <laughs> that, that. See, here's what we have to understand is that's the way their brains are wired. Right. They're not bad. That's the way their brains are wired. In fact, just to hit home on this point, if you think about it, when infants are born, their job is to notice what's going on inside of themselves and indicate to others if they're in distress. They're very self-centered. They're very impulsive. And it takes the brain about 20 to 25 years to actually fully develop where we lose that self-centeredness, we, we become more mature. The part of the brain that regulates all this is called the prefrontal cortex. Okay. It doesn't fully develop till the mid-20s. So the way kids are acting is the way they're supposed to act. If they're mm-hmm. not acting that way as a psychologist, I'm thinking there's something wrong with them. So we don't punish them for doing what their brains do. We teach them how to do something different because we can teach the brain, we can't just assume it happens naturally. Right. No. And I actually didn't even know that the prefrontal cortex doesn't, you know, uh, mature until like in your inner twenties. Like I didn't even know that, but then again, I'm not an expert in, you know, neuroscience or dealing with the brain in general. I mean, I mean, I I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that's why one of the main things you have to understand, and that's why you have to see your kids behavior differently. They're not misbehaving. They're actually being normal. It doesn't make it okay. It's not an excuse, but that's the way they're wired. They're not wired to behave. Right. (laughs) Sorry, I just I'm laughing a little bit because I'm just yeah. like, oh yeah, and then that would explain why I always gave such a hard time, like even in my early twenties, until yeah. I finally some things felt like it just kind of I don't know flipped a switch, and it before I know it, I I didn't act like that anymore. Yeah, because your prefrontal cortex had fully matured. That's basically what happens. And for boys, it takes a little longer than for girls, so they're more like the late twenties. But yeah, okay. absolutely. But having an underdeveloped prefrontal cortex is not an excuse. Yeah. It's just a reason that, that most parents don't address. And so they, they're addressing the same behaviors over and over because they don't address the real reason. And that's, it makes us exhausted. Yeah. And then it goes back into the whole in the moment parenting. And it right. just, then you wonder why it leads to like mommy burnout or even dad burnout. And yeah, it's just, no, no one needs to feel like that. <laughs> oh, no, you really don't. It's so much easier if you just teach them how to behave rather than punishing away what's natural in them. You teach them these tools. And I've taught so many parents these tools. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so much less exhausted because I actually just take the 15 minutes to teach this tool. And then I'm not spending the hours and hours addressing that behavior over and over. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Right. And I know that um, uh, one of the talking points, because I was looking at parent resentment, because I'm like, oh, I have a lot to talk about that. <laughs> it's because uh, when I hear parent resentment, it's, it's not resenting your kids, but maybe it's just more of like the parenting aspect. I'm not sure. Like, what is parent yes. resentment? I'm so here's curious. the thing about parenting resentment that's interesting is that parenting resentment can almost always be um, directly associated with lack of a boundary. So you're right. It's not our kids that we're resentful of because kids are big kids. We become resentful when we don't set a boundary. So we're resentful when our kid asks us for the third bedtime story, or we're resentful when they didn't clean up their plate, but we didn't tell them to clean up their plate or we didn't follow through, or we're, we're resentful of our spouse because they're on their phone all the time, but we've never said, Hey, you need to be off the phone. Like we've never done that. So we become resentful when we don't set boundaries. And the good news is when we realize that we can learn how to set boundaries, which is not easy. It sounds like it's an easy thing to set boundaries. It's not, it creates a lot of emotion and discomfort. But resentment is caused by us not setting boundaries. Right. And, you know, like you're saying, the boundaries, you know, it sounds like it's so easy, but then, you know, how, how do you know that that behavior hasn't been occurring for like maybe 10 years or, you know, even longer? That takes a long time to break that down. And, you know, it's like breaking those like walls and then hitting a fourth wall. It's, it's not going to happen right away. Exactly. Exactly. And what happens is we try to set a boundary. And to your point, the behavior doesn't change right away. And so we think, oh, it didn't work, but we have to be consistent. And here's the mm -hmm. thing is that we have to be consistent in handling our discomfort because it's uncomfortable to set a boundary. So one of the things I teach parents, it's a tool that parents are missing, is how do you handle discomfort? When you set a boundary and someone resists, how do you handle that? Because what usually happens is we just give up. We give up on our boundary because we don't know how to handle the, their resistance and the discomfort that arises. So. Right. Could that actually be where the whole fight or flight can even happen to when it comes to the idea of like, oh, it didn't work. Like 100%. that kind of, okay. Yeah. That's what I had a feeling, but I, I'm just, I don't know. I'm like, always you, do know. you do know. Yeah. Right. Cause I'm wondering too, cause I see another talking point is like the, like why so many boundaries, like, and how it makes us feel worse or better or not better. I should say. Like, I'm just curious, like what that actually means. Yeah. So that's what I was saying. When we set boundaries, a lot of people realize I need to set more boundaries, but they also think, oh, I'll set a boundary and then I'll feel immediately better. That's not what happens. When we set a boundary, like I was saying, um, you initially feel worse. And if we don't expect that, what happens is we feel worse and then we stop setting boundaries and then we get stuck in that cycle of resentment. So you have to expect that boundaries do not feel good at first. But here's what I always say about boundaries, because I coach a lot of parents in this is that you're gonna feel bad either way. You're yeah. gonna feel bad if you don't set a boundary, you're gonna be resentful. You're gonna feel bad if you do set a boundary because you're gonna get resistance, you're gonna have to deal with all that. But if you're gonna feel bad either way, you may as well set a boundary because at least in the long run, it leads to positive things. And not setting a boundary in the long run leads to more resentment. Setting a boundary in the long run means you actually have more energy, you have more time. So this is an area that we just have to be aware. It's gonna be uncomfortable and we can get through it. Right you know, being uncomfortable. And then I like that, how you pointed out too, that it's better to have a boundary and feel uncomfortable with it than to not have one, but still being un unhappy anyway. Cause it right. seems like there's no winning there. It's kind of like a lose, lose on a parent's part, but then it's like being okay with losing too. Cause being you gotta okay be okay with, with it in the short run to yeah. get something in the long run. And that's why I talk about long game parenting because I, I you know, long game parenting, the way I describe it doesn't even take longer. It just lasts longer. The mm -hmm. only thing it takes is a shift in how we react. It takes no extra time to do these things that I'm saying. In fact, a lot of times it takes less time. It's just a mental shift. And the good news is that that doesn't take more time. 
It just takes doing something different. Right. And the idea of like parenting in less time versus um, doing it, you know, maybe as someone's currently doing it now where the whole fight or flight response, like being exhausted because they're like, I wonder why their behavior is not changing. (laughs) Exactly. And their, their energy actually depends a lot on our energy too. So Mm -hmm. if we're in a place of constantly addressing their behavior, we get negative and then that actually makes their, their behavior worse. Right. Yeah. So we, we really have to, that's why we have to take care of ourselves first and then see it change how we see their behavior. And then things really, really do get better. Right. And I know um, there's an idea of like emotional deposits, like what's something like that? Because I'm curious what that actually means. So deposits are, a lot of people think deposits are spending time with your child. And that may be a deposit, but what I actually mean, or people will also say, I make deposits because I tell them how great they are. I tell them how wonderful they are. I spend time with them. And here's the thing I say about deposits is that when I talk about deposits, I'm not talking about depositing into wants. I'm talking about depositing into needs. Those are two different things. So depositing into wants are things like changing your boundary. Kids want you to give them ice cream for dinner. They want you to tell them how great they are. Those are all wants. But we actually have, clinically, we have needs. And so deposits are into these needs. Like, for example, we have a need for control. So if we give kids age-appropriate control within our boundaries, not control over everything, but if we give them age-appropriate control, then that's actually what I call a deposit. Or if we teach them tools, that's also an example of a deposit because we've made them feel more capable. So deposits are not telling kids how great they are or even just spending time with them. Deposits are actually giving them what they need to improve their self-esteem, to improve their, um, you know, their belief in their own capability. Those are what I mean by deposits. Yeah, no, and I, I don't know why the idea of like a bank account kind of like set up in like my mind there because it's like the wants are more of like, I don't know, you might want to call that like a checking account. You know, you're putting more yeah. into the checking rather than savings, which are your needs. Oh. Yeah. So I don't know why. That's so funny because I use deposits because I do explain this like a bank account with withdrawal deposits, but Mm -hmm. I never actually extended that to to checking and savings. That's brilliant. You're right. Checking is short-term fixes that don't last. Savings is where you see all the results. That's such a brilliant extension. Yeah. No. And I just like, I don't know why I was like coming to mind like a bank account because there's like, you know, checking savings, you know, your typical bank accounts and stuff like that. But it's like, the wants are more of like the checking long, you know, short term, you know, pays stuff like right away, but it's not fixing, you know, long term because it's not. <laughs> not. In fact, if all you're doing is putting into your checking account to, to go with what you're saying mm-hmm. and you're not putting into savings, what actually happens is kids become entitled and spoiled. Right. And right. if you're only giving them what they want, then you're raising very honestly a kid who just expects to get what they want. Mm-hmm. But when you deposit into savings, you are raising a responsible, respectful, resilient child. And very honestly, punishment is a checking account. Mm-hmm. Whereas teaching tools is a saving account. It really right. is. Right. Kind of like the idea of like emotional regulation that should be more of like your savings because eventually over long term, you're teaching them it's okay to be upset, but it's like, but how you approach it is going to make a huge difference too. Exactly. How you respond to your upset. Instead of telling mom that she's mean and you hate her, you can tell mom, um, and not that this is, it takes time to teach kids this, but you can actually teach kids how to soothe their bodies and then say, okay, I need to take some deep breaths. And then I'm going to say to mom, hey, mom, that really bothered me what you said. Now, it doesn't happen overnight, but that is a teachable skill. And it doesn't take years. It takes weeks to months, and that's it. And then kids have that for life. So if you teach a seven-year-old that, and you take a couple weeks to maybe a month to teach that, then from ages wherever you know they are now to adulthood, you have taught the skill. You've spent two to three weeks, maybe a month, 
to teach a skill that lasts a lifetime. And you could potentially save their marriage by doing mm-hmm. that. Right. No, and then my idea, like my goal, at, you know, at the end of my parenting game is to raise a child that is not only respectful to his parents, but to other people later on. And definitely boundaries too, because that's huge with me because I like my personal space. And if I feel like someone's violating that, I'm like, nope, this is what I'm going to teach you to like respect my personal space. Like, please respect that. And my, my fear is that if my, I don't teach my kid this now, like what's that going to be later when he's like my age, like twenties, like thirties, like that scares me more than anything. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So all you have to do is teach him. Whenever I say teach a tool, I probably should should have said this in the very beginning, teach him how to do what you ask. That's all you have to think about. How, what, tell him what to do, not what not to do. We tell our kids what not to do. Leave, you know, give me space. How can he give you space? Mm-hmm. So you can teach him when you feel like touching me, this is what you can do instead. That's teaching a tool right there. Teaching kids how to do what we ask is key. That is the savings account. Right. And I know that um, there's times where if I'm already tired, you know, exhausted just from the day, just day events, you know, it happens because parents get tired pretty quickly every day. Yeah. Right. Every day of their lives. And then, you know, sometimes I get overstimulated. So I'm just like, okay, I need, you know, if he's trying to like touch me, if we're like on the couch watching TV and he's like constantly touching my arm, I'm like, okay, instead of touching mom, like, please touch this blanket or touch something else. (laughs) You got it. So that is exactly what I'm talking about. You had two choices there. You could have said, stop touching me, go to your room and think about what you did, which is a punishment. Right. Or you could say, instead of touching me, touch this, which actually meets his need. That's mm-hmm. what you did. You gave him a tool to meet his need and you didn't have to punish. You right. still, his, his need got met, your need got met, and there was no punishment involved. You just taught him what to do instead. And that right. is exactly what I teach parents. How do we teach kids what to do instead? Yeah. Right. And another thing too, I want to touch on really quickly here is the, this is not new because the whole like COVID pandemic really caused like schools to like shut down and everything and like literally closing schools, like in the middle of the school year, which is crazy. Exactly. Um, like, what do you think the emotional toll is going to be on kids when schools reopen or if they do? Cause I know a lot of States are either deciding between distance learning or, you know, a mix of hybrid, which would be in school and out of school. So what do I think it's going to be like for kids, like emotionally? Yeah. Uh, I think first of all, even very honestly, even going back to school in this hybrid model, which um, is going to be in a lot of parts of the country, Mm -hmm. it's going to be different because they are going to, especially if they've been to school before, if they're not, you know, just going for the first time, they're going to expect it to be like it was, and it's not going to be like it was. Um, So it's going to be different for them. It's also going to be different for kids who are learning distance learning because they have a lot of trouble focusing. So these are all the issues I help parents with. But here's the good news with all of this is that we, all our job as parents is to do is not to make it easier for them. It's to help them recognize what they're feeling and talk about it. That's it. So things are going to be different for them no matter what. But what we want to do as parents is ask these, is this is what I would, I'm going to give some phrases. Number one, say to your child, what's it like for you back at school and let them tell you. And then what we can do is instead of solving or fixing, just say, you know what? It is different. It is hard. I'm here with you. I'll listen to these feelings. You're not having these feelings alone. And that's all we have to do as parents is let our kids talk about what they're going through and let them know they're not alone. That's our job. We don't need to fix it or make it better. We just need to tell them they're not alone. Right. And I think just the idea of like empathy too, even if we're not like going through it, 
because I mean, clearly we've been out of school for how many years? It's not going through elementary school anytime soon. But yeah, I mean, I've I've never had to deal with any of that. So it's like, it's a new territory for me. It's new territory for him because he's never had to do this before. And I've asked him before, like, how do you feel about the long distance learning? And he is just like, I miss my friends. I don't like it because he misses his teachers. He misses just the structure of a, an environment. Yes. So your job as a parent, first of all, I love that you said empathy because, and I love that you said I haven't been through it before. You can use that to your advantage and say something to him like, you know what? I haven't been through this before. What is it like? And let him tell you. And then what you can say is, thanks for letting me know. And you can do one of two things. You can either say, do you want to try to find some solutions to help you see your friends more and, you know, maybe reach out to your teacher more? Or if there is no solution, because sometimes there isn't, the solution just becomes let, you know, you're not, you're not alone in this. I get that you're going through it. Talk to me about it. Let's even make, I've done this with my kids. I've made lists of them with all about all the things that stink about being home sometimes. And it's not that I'm letting them wallow because I actually don't let my kids wallow. What I'm doing is saying, you are allowed to have these feelings. You're not alone. And what happens is they actually release those feelings when they know they're not alone with them. And when we, we talk through them. So we make the, what stinks about this list and they're allowed to talk about it. And then we let them release. Right. Kind of like the idea of brain dumping. If that's 100%. My- yeah. I call this yuck dumping because I use the, the concept mm-hmm. of yuck. And I actually encourage both kids. I just did my podcast episode this week was on the yuck dump. It's very funny mm-hmm. that you said that. So <laughs> I encourage yuck dumping not only for kids, but for parents. Mm-hmm. We have to dump our own yuck and recognize what's in our control and what's not. I talked about that in my episode. But yeah, we have to dump it. We have mm-hmm. to brain dump because if we don't, the yucks get stuck inside and it makes our behavior worse and our moods worse and our attitudes worse. And in turn, just like taking a toll on your emotions, like in mental health. And I'm sure there's a lot of cases now where mental health has really gone through the roof because of the whole COVID pandemic. And Absolutely. And that's a yeah. lot of what I'm, I'm helping parents with. And it's not just kids' mental health. I'm actually focusing with more families, the focus is on the parents' mental health and the kids. Because mm-hmm. especially in the pandemic, we set the tone. And if we're not doing okay, they're not doing okay. Right. No, and I am, that's interesting that you say that because there was like a day, a few days ago where I was not doing okay at all because I was just, you know, sad because of, you know, not only my son, but I was feeling sad for myself a little bit and not trying to wallow. You know, I don't like to do that because I'm one of those people, like, I like to like internalize my emotions and just like understand like, okay, why am I feeling like this? And then eventually I talked to my husband about it. I'm like, I'm not saying you need to just interrupt me. Don't try to fix the problem. I just need to get this off my chest. (laughs) Absolutely. And our brains, here's the thing. Our brains are not wired to store information. They're not built to store information. They're built to process. We're very good at processing. We're not good at storing. So if you don't actually let it out, if you try to store all of that inside, it will grow and it will get bigger and it will create more yuck. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just, and I've taught my husband the same thing. It's funny. Um, I've taught him. Like I actually say to him, yes, you can fix or just listen. And he appreciate, I think all spouses appreciate when we tell them what we want. So they don't Mm -hmm. have to guess. And then, yeah, we can just let them know what we're going through and having another human being say, thank you for telling me you're not in this alone. Not, you're not fixing it. That is actually very um, soothing for the human brain to know we're not alone. Connection is a tool that we use to actually soothe the human brain. Right. Human connection is like the salve that people need more than anything. It really, really is. Even, you know, most religious death ceremonies around some sort of, you know, they they all include connection and there's a reason. It's not coincidence. Connection in humans, you're right, it's the salve. It really is what we need. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's not the fixing, it's the connecting, which is why I said with kids, you don't have to fix everything that's happening in the new year. You have to connect. That's what they need. 
Right. And I think probably that's now that I'm like looking at it more now, like now that we're actually talking about like connecting with kids and maybe that's what my son is needing. Cause maybe that's why he's acting out. Cause I'm not connecting with him enough, but then I'm like, I can't spend every second of the day either. <laughs> no quick tip. No, you can't. So here's the thing. He needs connection, but he doesn't, if you gave it to him every second of the day, you'd actually be spoiling him mm-hmm. and he won't get that anywhere else. So here's what I would say is make specific connection times. I do this because I work a lot. My kids are obviously home like everybody else's. I say, okay, okay we're going to connect today at 10 o'clock and at five o'clock. And in between times, you're not going to get my attention. But mm-hmm. when I'm with you at 10 and five, I actually let my kids move my phone. I have them take my phone and put it somewhere else because I'm on my phone a lot for right. work. I say at 10 and five, I'm connected. The other times you're not going to get me, but guess what? If you have a question between 10 and five, write it down and we will talk about it at 10 or five. Right. So they, kids don't need a lot of connection. They need to know connection is coming. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. No. And that's, um, it, and that kind of like the idea of like being secure, like they know the routine because kids need routines. Cause it's like, how do we function from day to day? Like, like what causes us to get up in the morning? Cause it's a routine for us. <laughs> it's like, yes. And we, you asked about deposits before routine is an example. Right. Of it actually right. makes kids feel safer. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Right. No. And I didn't think about that either. Like being yep. a deposit. Um, Final question is if someone wants to connect with you further with like um, on social media and like the podcast, like where can they find those at? So my podcast is Your Parenting Long Game and that's anywhere, you know, you, you have any podcast app. I also have a Facebook group, which is free called Your Parenting Long Game Facebook uh, podcast community. And I'm in there a lot. Um, and then you can also, my website is rachel-bailey.com. Or on social media, on YouTube, on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, I'm Rachel Bailey Parenting. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm in all of those places. And I have on my website some free resources as well. And I can even send you a link to a couple of free resources I have. Yeah, no, that'd be good. And that'd be good for the any listeners that want to listen to this. Like they can re- access those resources, especially yes. if they're struggling with the idea of parenting. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Because parenting is hard enough as it is. And it's like in the moment, parenting clearly doesn't work. So it's like, don't waste your time with it. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. It's a waste of time and energy. And there are things you can do proactively that are much simpler that really buy back some of that energy. Right. And just thinking like the time that you waste too, like it, all that exertion and everything, like you could be doing something that's actually fun. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And when I've had parents do a time audit where we actually look at the time they spend in power struggles and negotiations and it's amazing how much time we waste with that stuff. It really is. Yeah. We don't have to. Right. I'm sure I could probably like use a few of those resources myself. Cause I'm like, wow, I waste all that time doing this when I could be doing this instead. Correct. That's all the questions I had anyway, but thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me here. I appreciate it. I hope that you guys got something out of that conversation that I had with Rachel. I know that I did, and I personally cannot wait to use all the tips and tricks that she had talked about in this conversation. And if you're looking to up your parenting game or even just looking to switch out some things, maybe even consider the time-saving strategies. Because like I said earlier in this conversation, parenting is already hard enough as it is, and let's not make our jobs as parents any harder than what it needs to be. Also, if you would like to, make sure that you go and follow Rachel on Instagram and Facebook, and I will make sure to include those social media links in the show notes. You can also find Rachel at rachelbailey.com. 
That's all the time that I have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's show. I would love it if you would rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you'd like to, and I would so appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, as this helps to boost the show's visibility, as well as letting me know how well the show is doing and just making sure that you guys are enjoying the show's content. Also, if you would like to, you can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find that at the Hipster Mom Podcast. I will be back very soon with a brand new episode. So until next time, keep living your best life. Peace.